Hello, and welcome to a lock-in at the Crate and Crowbar, uh, where today we're going to be talking about Midnight Mass, the uh, Mike Flanagan uh, horror opus. Uh, I'm uh, Jamie Britton, and with me today to discuss uh, all things Midnight Massy is uh, Chris Thurston. Hello, Chris. Hi. Hi, hello. And uh, as if on cue, right at the beginning of recording this, because recording this during the day, which is unusual, um, my neighbours actually just started hammering on the wall. So if you hear an unsettling thumping sound throughout this uh, podcast, um, it's probably my RTX noise cancellation failing to uh, eliminate my neighbour, or it's coming from inside your own house, um, <laughs> as the case may B. This is the first time you and I have done a TV pod, Jamie. Yes, uh, it's, I'm very excited to be here. It's very strange when you've heard someone talk in your ears for probably many hundreds of hours and then you're suddenly in conversation with them. <laughs> it feels very mm. natural to me. It must feel quite weird to you. But <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's strange being me all of the time. So I <laughs> sympathize. Strange listening to me. Uh, strange hearing these things come out of my mouth uh, as they are right now. This moment <laughs> is strange. I really am launching into maybe a four to five minute monologue here, um, which will go somewhere I promise towards the end, uh, and it'll be very poignant. Uh, presumably, uh, presumably Zencaster can't deal with existential crisis. It can't flatten those no, out. You can't stare directly into the lens um, <laughs> of Zencaster, partly because we're not using webcams. Um, but I, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I, I'm really uh, excited to talk about Midnight Mass. And I appreciate that this, you know, we've done uh, a few things with these lock-ins. And, and so far as we've at least approached TV and film, we've we've definitely approached some of like the, the big uh, genre, you know, media of the moment, both through Dune and then obviously uh, last time with, with Deep Space Nine that you all did. Um, Midnight Mass I anticipate being a little bit different because uh, I don't expect that a lot of people have watched it necessarily. I think it was very popular on Netflix. It's a Netflix show, uh, but nonetheless, not probably on the scale of like a big sci-fi adaptation or Star Trek as an entity. Um, and so I did want to say at the top of this, um, kind of what the show is, why I've chosen to talk about it, and then also the kind of spoiler warning to end all spoiler warnings, really. So... Um, Mike Flanagan has now produced several of these sort of big ensemble horror opuses, as you as you put it, for Netflix and generally. Um, so Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Bly Manor, um, and now Midnight Mass. And I will say that I think Midnight Mass for me is probably my favorite bit of screen media this year. I really, really, really enjoyed it a lot. And I'm really excited to talk about it, uh, which is one of the reasons that I want to talk about it and TV horror and, and all the things that kind of arise from it. Um, however... I benefited enormously, as I have with his other shows as well, from going in really not knowing anything about it. Um, and specifically, I think Midnight Mass is, is quite spoilable. Um, so much so that even encountering it on like a you know a, a like a pop culture website or something has the power to probably um, ruin parts of it. So consider this a really big spoiler warning. I would say, and I actually would like to get your take on this as well, Jamie. Like. Um, for me, I think it is a really um, kind of rich and intelligent use of TV for horror that I enjoyed enormously and I got a lot out of both from a kind of horror fan perspective and just from a fan of sort of like performance and um, rich atmospheric television making. Um, and I would recommend anyone who's interested in those things and willing to put up with a few spooks um, to watch it and know nothing about it. Um and, and also, therefore, to stop listening to this momentarily. But how about you? Um, how would you approach it from a spoiler-free 
as a spoiler-free uh, summary or recommendation. Yeah, I would just I would probably agree with you that it was certainly among the best things I saw on a on a TV this year. Uh, I find um, the uh, streaming age of television completely exhausting and completely overwhelming, and so I'm often deciding not to watch things because they feel like too much, you know, too much of an imposition on an already fragile brain. Um, but once I started off on uh, Midnight Mass, I was I was really taken with it, and I think it's really good. And it's a really singular, um, independent piece of work that doesn't have any kind of stuff around it. It gives you everything you need in a in a relatively short package. Um, so yeah, I would if people are listening to this and they haven't seen it, I would urge them to watch it because it is dead good. Um, yeah, and I was really pleased that I had no idea uh, what was going on when I went in. Um, and yeah, if you Google it, you'll probably spoil it uh, because SEO yeah. doesn't SEO doesn't care for your um, unspoiled brain. I suspect Netflix's algorithm could spoil it at this point. Just if you can, maybe get a, a family member or a pet to use your Netflix for you, and then sit there for nine hours, and then you can come back and 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 listen to us talk about it. It might be worth maybe this side of whatever spoiler break we put in as well, talking a little bit about how us how we ourselves kind of came to encounter this am i right in saying this is the first of the kind of mike flanagan horror oeuvre that you've encountered jim yes i think this is I've, i'd seen his film i'd seen uh, gerald's game um based on the stephen mm-hmm. king novel and i think we'll probably end up talking about stephen king quite a bit in this um and i'd enjoyed it i thought it was a solid adaptation of a you know one of stephen king's least adaptable books probably um, although that's never stopped anyone from trying, has it? Either way, I thought it was good and 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 interesting. I think the snob in me had decided that Mike Flanagan wasn't for me because I'd seen the terms... Uh, I don't even know what I'd seen. Just through osmosis and the way people were talking about Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor, I think there was a nasty, critical... Uh, you know, genre snob in me who thought, oh, who is this, you know, pretender coming here pretending to bring literary values to the horror genre? No, thank you. Um, and then having watched uh, Midnight Mass and a little bit of those other shows, I realised, oh, no, it's 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 not the bad version of that. It's it's the good version, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, that was my experience before. So for me, I I hadn't actually seen anything of his until Bly Manor came out last year. And then I watched sort of inhaled um, uh, Bly Manor, which is um, very much a, a successor to Hill House, which I then subsequently went and watched. Um, but both of those shows um, I would also recommend. Um, and both of them are constructed in a similar way, although Bly Manor, we're talking about literary horror, um, Bly Manor is... is quite specifically uh, at least starts out as an adaptation of um, the turning of the screw uh, or sorry, the turn of the screw. And then, um, and then sort of branches into different sort of Henry James areas of Henry James. And it's kind of like um, scope, but very much goes in its own direction when it wants to. And in both cases, um, what I admired about it was partly that sort of literary sense. Um, But I would probably take it a little bit separately. And it'd be interesting to maybe to unpack this as it relates to midnight mass when we're on the other side of the spoiler wall. But I agree with you that there's both a kind of strong literary uh, influence, but also I think a really strong um, theatrical influence, particularly like not just as adaptation, but as dramatization of these books and the way that it appro- way that um, it's a particular approach to performance, which is very heavy on uh, ensembles, but ensembles made up of 
um, very rich individual parts, almost like uh, a huge favor is being done to every single actor in these shows. Like you don't get to be in a in a Mike Flanagan show and not get given um, a real opportunity to swing for the fences, in, in, you know, with a with a, a, a rich character moment or a monologue or something, which I had also seen attract some fairly cynical criticism. But I maybe sometimes I enjoy it as a guilty pleasure, but I do nonetheless really enjoy, and I find it quite unusual as approach to TV. It's not strictly naturalistic performance a lot of the time it's very um as i say very it can be stagey but it can also be sort of very richly sort of stylized in a way that i find quite effective and then particularly in the context of those shows by manor and 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 hill house shows that are constructed almost as like mystery box uh, but not in the bad way sort of like um sort of tours of these environments where you have these closed environments and those in both cases haunted houses um that are so kind of rich in detail and and blink or you'll miss it clues and, and sort of this sort of like uh, almost like contraption of the thing is so ornate that it then kind of keeps you kind of alert and focused um constantly throughout these very rich kind of uh, horror experiences in a way that i think brings out the best in the it's more kind of um literary or kind of dramaturgical aspirations and sets you up to shit yourself inside out um, when he decides to do a big boo. Yeah. And those are the two, these are the two, this is the, you know, the, the yin and the yang of these experiences. Um, yes. Getting a bit weepy because of a meaningful character beat and then uh, having a heart attack uh, minutes later. It's two different ways of interacting with the human heart, I believe. Absolutely. <laughs> it's funny because he does, you're absolutely right. It, he does kind of break a fairly fundamental rule of television, really, which is to have characters basically arrive in the show, they say, hi, my name is Steve, and this is my deal. This is what I'm about. And I'm going to talk for a very long time about what I'm about and where I'm coming from. And I'm going to do this several times over the course of this series of television. And you're just going to sit there and listen to it. There's not going to really be any crosstalk mm. or interrogation of this. I'm just going to say my thing. And normally that is, you know, if you take any writing course or screenwriting course or anything like that, show don't tell, you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty high up the board of the guy standing at the front of the classroom pretending he knows what he's talking about with these things. Um and it's really nice to see it done. It is a theatrical um sort of, you know, people do that in plays a lot because they have to, because you know, there aren't bombs going off or guns to shoot necessarily all the time in a movie so you have to fill that space with monologues um and yeah it's funny that people talk about midnight mass and they say it's ponderous and slow or sentimental um all the kind of um you know bad vibes that kind of get slung its way and i just disagree with all of them i think the effect is mm. actually magical <laughs> um, yeah it's heartfelt even you could use the word melodramatic but at no point does it seem insincere uh, or untruthful or you know disparate from my own experiences of of existence right well i think that's the thing and for me it's like something i really um like about all of these shows um maybe um, before we get into Midnight specifically, is almost like the openness with which characters express themselves. It's like everyone in this universe has been granted the confidence and eloquence that you believe that you have when it is two in the morning at a, a house party in university and the conch has arrived in your lap and it's time to just explain life to the person sat next to you, right? Um, and you're probably in reality talking complete bollocks, but in your head, 
it sounds very profound or what they're saying to you sounds very profound. Maybe that is a very specific experience of mine that I'm projecting onto these shows, but it has that sense of like sudden intimacy with someone's interior life, albeit in quite a stagey and kind of larger than life way. Um, that feels to me quite like generous. Like it feels like a generosity of sentiment rather than something you should shy away from because it is sentimental. Like, and I think sometimes it speaks to, a. You know, uh, the, the reaction it receives speaks to an aversion to just sort of like, um, maybe this is t- too much by me, but if an aversion to eloquent sort of openness on the part of characters that we would we would rather um, emotion like the sort of uh, interiority go kind of unexplained or kind of gestured at and therefore kind of left sort of comfortably far away so we don't really need to encounter it don't really need to cringe away from um the the sort of literally both the expository nature of that stuff but also how much it exposes about those characters in those moments whereas i think for me in the way that's where not just theatrical but it's almost like operatic sometimes right like i'm not just going to tell you how i'm what my deal is i'm gonna i'm gonna really perform it and that i think is is actually like for me quite refreshing in an era of naturalistic portrayals of emotion particularly i think of of maybe this is going a bit too far but we can get into it with midnight my specifically of like emotions as experienced by men where we're, we're in a, and a lot of the time in our kind of prestige tv we're looking for performances of the unsaid rather than the painstakingly articulated um directly into someone else's eyes <laughs> yeah and I would also say that it is a element of it's one of the elements of of Stephen King's writing, mm. which I think is oft is often adapted very successfully in his non kind of horror sort of thing. So like Shawshank Redemption or The Green Mile or Stand by Me all have that similar level of emotional heat and passion to them that I think is the thing that is often undersold about Stephen King's writing when people are talking about him as a master of horror. You know, if you look at something of his like It, um, which this draws mm. from, um, or Under the Dome, actually, which is a book I really like by him, they have this level of emotion, emotional sort of size to them of mass, uh, midnight mass, <laughs> which is, uh, <laughs> is, is really something. And I think is something he does really well as a writer that people often overlook. Um, and I think Mike Flanagan engages with that um and turns it into something kind of new, which I think is super exciting about him, you know, what he's going to come up with next as well. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's also, um, I feel like we're getting quite a lot of this, a lot of red meat on the subject of just why this works without getting to the spoilers, actually. But I think it's also has a really crucial relationship with horror as a genre. Like, you know, not every Stephen King novel you mentioned there is like strictly horror or like, you know, or is a horror novel at all, actually, necessarily. And, but I think, you know, there's a reason that, these shows work because they're horror shows in addition to being sort of genre horror shows as well. And it's because I think they identify something that I've always loved about horror, which is it is a way to kind of fully expose in a safe environment, um, the uncomfortable sides of our own sort of feelings and anxieties and play them up. And, um, you know, one thing that's really crucial, I think, and there's a lot of repeated themes in his work, particularly when it comes to things like, um, sort of um families falling apart addiction love and these things being felt very very keenly whether people are encountering them and how this um particularly in in hill house without spoilers for hill house or bly manor particularly as it imposes on those shows 
um, that are sort of um, that is what ghosts are in these in those in those shows to to a greater or lesser extent. Um, that you know it uses the medium of a ghost story to take that dramatization of the interior lives of those characters even further, right? To, to project those traumas and emotions and what they represent into the world in terms of a tangible slash intangible um, threat. And that for me is sort of, I mean, that's always been true of horror, right? To, to a greater or lesser extent. But I think um, this, I think these shows for me make a really, really strong case for why that's not just a kind of fun thing to experience as a genre piece, but also like um, a really valid dramatic technique when it comes to kind of really, really getting into this, as you say, kind of emotional heat and enjoying being present in that environment. Yeah, it's something kind of particular about horror. And I think it's a big theme in this show as well of like, you know, you get from it what you take to it. You know, horror films, a particular horror film will work on someone that it, on, 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 on one person that it doesn't work on another because they don't have the same set of fears, you know. Mm. And the, the you know, the books that he's adapted, Turn of the Screw, which I read relatively recently, I hated, I've always hated Henry James as a writer because he forced to read him at university. But then I read Turn of the Screw and I was like, wow, what a knockout book. Like it's, yeah. and it's about that. It's about like, the horror you bring to a frightening situation and what that means specifically for you <laughs> as a mm. as a human being and and why it's you know the sort of existential nature of horror um and the ambiguity in that which he draws you know Henry James at least draws superbly and i think again mid the midnight mass is of a piece of that because it is about kind of uh you know the liquid takes the shape of the chalice, you know, right. things, things are interpreted through humans in supernatural elements are interpreted through humans in the way that is, is significant to them and is particular to them. Mm. And I think it's also the great success of this ensemble format, which has been the case across these shows is um, it's not just one person's perspective on whatever it is that's going on. Obviously at this point we're still avoiding spoilers. It's like it, it, they're very dramatically rich. These shows, I think because they give you multiple ways into and out multiple conclusions out of these scenarios at the same time from multiple viewpoints. And this is also very relevant to midnight mass. Therefore I think, become like quite a rich sort of like overall fabric right of of responses that doesn't necessarily foreground one or another is correct but gives you a kind of i think quite a kind of um or gave me at least um quite a kind of touching sense of the interconnectedness of these interpretations as well rather than the sort of a horror um perspective being one that like we're ultimately isolated from one another by these unique encounters with our own lives with with whatever we carry with us whatever we bring with us as you say there's actually one of the show's um messages and i would actually argue one of the messages of all of these shows to some extent is this is not a isolated experience even if it is isolating that this sort of horror reality this sort of um shared pain is actually something that um unites as well and that's actually like i i find them strangely optimistic as horrible as they can be which is um quite a nice thing um and like actually i think despite and despite the subject matter a lot of the time not nihilistic either right like it doesn't tend towards this position of um of uh 
doom and isolation and but actually towards a, a, a greater sense of um humanity which is quite uh well for me i think quite affecting um and not something i necessarily expect to get from a spooky show about things going boo yeah i mean it was one of those shows where after it finished i kind of you know i think the very best tv can do this where you just sort of <laughs> you feel it in your heart for a you know a mm. while you know you carry it with you i remember when six feet under ended and i remember walking down from my student flat to town having just watched that and just feeling like kind of heartbroken and joyous at the same time you know when i felt the mm. same way with twin peaks the return and i felt the same way with with midnight mass too it's like it, these these things can really and books and movies and everything can do it but like it's rare in tv i think because there's often too much of it of of too low quality or you know getting to the end of one of these shows is a slog and and midnight mass just kind of it really it's a show about meaning and it's a show about you know big stuff and it, it goes places and i you know i, I appreciate <laughs> the ambition of it and the scope of it for that yeah i i, I had the same experience i watched Midnight Mass is a lot of these horror shows I kind of watch by myself and I watch I tend to watch them early in the morning before work because that's kind of the time I have for like an hour of TV or something and I, I watched Midnight Mass over the course of about a week and a half I think quite early in the morning and the day after finishing it had that sort of slightly um you know had that kind of post good art shimmer to it which <laughs> is something that you don't get all the time and um and you know um and it stayed on my mind and actually in preparation did that i finished it about a month ago and in preparation for recording today i went back and, and this morning before work early rewatched chunks of it um and it was nice to reconnect to it and sort of um actually come away from it watching the final moments of the show again as well like actually come away from it almost with the afterglow of that same effect which is i think a testament to how good it is actually um I think maybe before we break out, break onto the other side of the spoiler wall and actually just start talking about the episode by episode, um, we should maybe give a brief premise <laughs> for Midnight Mass, <laughs> but I almost don't know where to start. Um, maybe the, the way I would start it to somebody is like, it takes what was sort of, what is very enclosed and family-based about the, the haunted house shows, both of the, the haunting ofs, um, and expands it to a... A, high, a, a, a larger community, but a, a nonetheless a very isolated one, an isolated fishing community off the coast of New England. Um, in the modern day, um, uh, following uh, several characters um, returning to this island and and the kind of their interconnected relationships with one another, their relationships with grief and the things that they have um, brought with them, the isolated nature of that community and the role that... Um, faith particularly powerful faith um plays in that community in the way that it kind of binds and isolates individual people and then stuff happens that i won't talk about was there anything i've missed do you think that you would use to kind of sell it to someone without saying any of the forbidden words no i, w I would say that that's that's about right yeah cool well in that case um if you haven't watched it and we've sold you on it um please 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 stop listening now and just don't google it just like i say um find some way to like uh enter a fugue state and when your eyes open again you are watching midnight mass when you've done that uh come back um i feel like we should put some sort of like noise here or something or maybe just a big jump scare to kind of frighten people away from the other side of the spoilers but nonetheless let's just get into it from this point onwards we're going to say forbidden words oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, <laughs> I, I was I was taken by your forbidden words. I was like, maybe they're all forbidden words. <laughs> yeah, they're all forbidden words. Um, yeah. Wait, so let's, let's should we just start at the start and talk through it? Yeah, definitely. So um, the episodes are all named after books of the Bible, which is very metal. <laughs> I couldn't help it thinking is extremely it was like metal. Lamb of God album uh, name titles or something like that. Um, well, Midnight Mass is a great band name. It is. It is, yeah. It's almost Candle Mass, Doom Metal Heroes Candle Mass. Um, true. But... <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, so in the first episode, we meet uh, Riley Flynn, uh, and I think the episode begins with a flashback to him murdering someone uh, with his car whilst uh, drink driving, which gives him mm. his kind of sort of fundamental pain that he's he's dealing with. Um, and he's our kind of audience surrogate for the first uh, sort of act of the show, well, the first half of the show, I guess. Um, and he's sort of lost his faith and he's kind of coming back to his family uh, and sort of meeting his childhood sweetheart and his uh, his brother, <laughs> his younger brother, his parents, one of whom's played by the kid from E.T., which blew my mind entirely when I realised who that was. Um, <laughs> yeah, Henry Thomas. I had that to blind manner. <laughs> And yeah, we're basically just sort of introduced to this Crockett Island, uh, the Crockpot, they call it, uh, this sort of slightly doomed uh, fishing hamlet. Um, very, very slow burn first episode, I'd say. Like, really very little happens in it. Um, and for me, coming to this as my first sort of Flanagan, you know, sort of horror show type thing, I was, I was, I mean, I found it kind of perfumed and kind of uh really mm. intriguing actually it didn't seem it didn't seem it's a, it felt like a very purposeful but very very slow opening act to something very interesting indeed yeah i i, I think coming to it um with a bit more experience i found like i have the same sense of uh i was kind of immediately in i think and i think there's because because of the way these shows are constructed I had that sense, maybe that maybe you wouldn't have had that like every single part of this ensemble is going to be significant and every detail in this, because you're right, nothing really happens, but it is littered with detail, right? It is almost, you know that you're watching a horror show. Um, it, it is almost in, um, baiting you um, to start reading into these details and i think something that i want to get to say in that mass but we'll get there is i think that concept of reading into this the signs and symbols that you're seeing is a hugely important theme and it kind of starts right away as this this cast of characters is introduced um the interrelationships um the the implied conflicts the sense that this town has undergone a kind of it has undergone a uh, a serious um tragedy in the sense of this oil spill and then the subsequent kind of like the fact that it's its population is rapidly dwindling um and it kind of invites you to start trying to identify where the horror is going to come from in this place even as it feels like a uh uh as you say a kind of doomed and foreboding place already this notion of a storm coming which is very literally true in the first episode um and I think also the way it then litters these small um, moments, like it's not without its scares, right? This first episode, it has the kind of sudden shocking appearance of the the young woman that Riley killed, who is um, kind of haunts him um, quite literally. 
Um, it has the appearance of something out on the, is it the Narrows? Um, the kind of like the, 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 the smaller island covered in cats that the teenagers uh, row out to to smoke weed. Um, the appearance of something there it has Riley see something on the beach, but gives you no answers about any of this. And something I would also append to this is I love the choice of a New England fishing hamlet for this, because at least in like American horror, that leaves the door extremely open within the kind of Stephen King universe for almost anything to happen next. Um, whether that's, you know, going to be built around the kind of religious terror implied by this charismatic new priest, whether it's a monster, whether it's something from the sea in a more Lovecraftian sense, like all of that stuff is kind of left there in front of you with almost none of it happening, which I really like. Yes, extraordinary. And actually, because it's it's another way that the show really uses and really mobilizes its characters to a theme in that everyone in the show feels human everyone feels human no one feels like an there's one character who does feel like an a, the, the villain of the piece and mm-hmm. she sort of does turn out to be that uh bev um who i think is probably the show's least successful character because i think she's very much required to be there but i think she's a little bit too close to the character from the mist played by marcia gay hard and i think she slightly suffers from that but we'll get that Either way, mm. everyone we meet is a human being <laughs> um, with faults and, you know, there's an awkward dinner scene at home. and But the people don't seem caricatured in any sense and they don't seem like easy archetypes, really, um, which is very unnerving. And I think the New England setting really helps for that because if this was like the Deep South... Um, mm. Um, or hunt showdown land you know there'd be all sorts (laughs) of stuff hiding in you know rusty barns and lots of rednecks you know toting shotguns and stuff like that but it really does set you on edge to be like well these are this is just an island of relatively reasonable god-fearing folk who look out for each other um and you know have a uh, uh, a middle eastern guy as their sheriff you know it's kind of it's it's as you say, it is an unusual opening salvo because because of what's missing. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think something I, I find um, I feel like we will need to keep talking about Bev. But one thing I kind of I think one of the reasons I, I I like Bev in this, but I think particularly because as you learn more and more about her, she has her own complexities, but also she is the person who is most sort of um, caricatured themselves in a way. And I think a theme that is introduced here is this relationship between text and particularly the Bible and who you are and how, you know, and the fact that even in this God-fearing community, um, there is a ton of um, meaningful diversity of perspectives and um, relationships with that, with that faith. Like, yes, they're God-fearing people that look out for each other, but they're also God-fearing people who um, have, mostly welcomed a uh like a, a muslim police officer into their midst mostly i want to draw out that a little bit more as we get into it as it as it's kind of explored further in the show because i think it's a big success of the show but um it doesn't as you say lean into more kind of um hard divides between people you know, the character um the the town drunk as well a sympathetic character someone who's also kind of interlinked the fact that the you know, characters show up in different contexts. So the organist from the church is also kind of, um, you know, a kind of handyman around the t- town. These sorts of um, 
Uh, actually, they're not quite the same character, but you know what I mean? That kind of like intermingling of all of these things in that crockpot, as they put it, as a way of sort of defying the hard hard lines imposed on people by text and textuality. And in this case, both the script and the script of, of faith that some people follow more rigidly than others, notably Bev, who renders herself almost sort of cartoonish at times um, as a consequence of that strongly didactic attitude. Um, which I find a really interesting balance of things to introduce, particularly as you're inviting the audience to wonder about the genre that this is actually ultimately going to fit into. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, she's, uh, I think in this, even in this early episode, we get a sense of how the, the, the island has kind of sold out after this, this, um, this oil spill and, and that she's been a kind of agent in collecting money from that for her church you know mm. sort of um, replacing fish <laughs> with god um uh which i think is fascinating uh for her to sort of start with um and then of the sort of the sort of other thing that's happening in this episode is we're meeting uh father paul hill uh played by hamish linklater who i just can't talk enough sugar about i just think he's fantastic yeah uh all over this show in a show full of absolutely superb performances i think he's my favorite um Mm -hmm. he's popped up in a few things over the years um legion i think he's very good in as well um but yeah he kind of turns up with actually quite little ceremony when i was watching this i didn't know that he was going to be kind of our main guy that you know Mm -hmm. um and i was surprised when he kind of he became that you know i thought i thought oh this is this cool priest who's going to be this kind of player in what's going to unfold i didn't necessarily realize um that he is in fact the whole mystery and he is responsible for everything that's um going to unfold yeah totally it's such a good performance we should definitely keep keep returning to Hamish Sinclair because he is the heart of the show but also I think that the effect of him sort of the surprise of him is something the show orchestrates quite deliberately like it you know there's uh, multiple scenes in the first episode of you know Bev excited to go meet um you know she's expecting the former priest Monsignor Pruitt um and this man does not show up you know like there's sort of the there's the cut there's like scenes of people missing each other in absences and, and then suddenly here is this man out of nowhere in the center of this, very much in the center of this island in the church. And um, you are kind of put alongside the, the the characters of the show in that moment are kind of getting used to the idea that in and among this sort of intercollected ensemble, there is now someone new who, uh, as you say, is going to be both the motivated mystery, but also like doesn't quite fit. And and there there's so many lovely little details, you know, um, both through like priestly vestments and everything else to indicate those little moments of um incompatibility that start as these little sort of nits that keep you from being fully comfortable with this person. And then that is only going to grow and grow and grow to realize, oh, that's the that's the show. <laughs> that's the that's what this is actually about. And I think that's really clever. And then at the end of the episode, maybe to bring us into the next one and the, the amazing opening scene of the next episode, um, you get something completely left field. You get a beach covered in dead cats. And I love that misdirect to the extent that it is. Yes, it's it's brilliant. I had no idea. <laughs> I had literally no idea that that was coming. I mean, we've seen a sort of figure that something flies through the sky earlier on, on on the way towards where those cats are, Mm. but we don't see it. And I was kind of, you know, uh, I had no idea, you know, what this meant and what those uh, dead cats (laughs) were going to signify. And yes, uh, 
in the second episode, uh, Psalms, uh, it does begin with an absolutely, I thought, spectacular opening scene, which is the dead cats on the beach and more or less every character from the show uh, coming onto the beach to kind of discuss it and talk about it and kind of, you know, introduce who they are. It's all done in a pretty much, I think, single unbroken I, take i rewatched it this morning it's an eight minute single take <laughs> gosh yeah and i couldn't see any cheats in it i don't think it does look, just look like a real you know a real mm-hmm. one yeah yeah and and think and this is also i think that's the scene that also fundamentally it follows i appreciate all the more watching it second time it follows um the sheriff um hassan rebel coley's character um and this is really your first full introduction to him as a character you, you, he's in the first episode as well obviously but i this actually maybe i'm wrong in saying this is his introduction i feel like this is like the first kind of full articulation of his role in the town um particularly because the large part of the scene is his conversation with the mayor um and i i it's such a great and pretty subtle articulation of the relationship between these two men who share ostensibly responsibility for this town and its people um and the very you know the particular personality of the mayor the areas where he overreaches in kind of requesting that the sheriff um make an appearance at mass even if it's not uh, as a convert is his exact words and but and the friendliness and the gentle probing and then the fact that as they walk down the beach together and and in one take it flows into another conversation with another group of people the sheriff starts to repeat the same anecdote to this new set in his attempt to kind of like explain everything away and and calm everything and it felt that i just love that kind of um again one of those things that feels quite uncomfortable but also very human um you're very much put in 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 uh uh, Hassan's shoes there as he is sort of humoring this man who is himself trying to humor everybody else. And you see the kind of the, um, the performativeness of that repeated anecdote and the kind of uncomfortableness of being present twice for someone else's story. And then the, the scene literally hands focus over to Riley as soon as he is introduced and he is the other outsider really in that scene, right? He's the other person who very much explicitly doesn't know where he fits. Um, and then it doesn't end until Riley is with Aaron um, and uh, his sort of childhood love interest and, and one of the other show, the show's other kind of uh, very important vocal voices, this, this um, uh, woman uh, who grew up on the island, uh, basically ran away uh, for most of her adult life and has returned um, pregnant. Um, and, you know, the, you know, the subject of speculation and gossip, etc. And, in doing so, it does this brilliant job of having, as you say, uh, an enormous part of the important cast of the show appear to kind of consider this mysterious, very strange, unsettling event. And then, but it keeps the focus between a set of characters in uh, Sheriff Hassan, Riley, and Erin, who are all going to be really key to the, um, uh, who's outside as outsiders is ultimately going to be really key to how this whole thing resolves. And I think that's, it's just such a great thing to rewatch in the light of particularly what's coming next as well. Yes. And there is something, uh, there's something magic, I think is maybe the right word uh, about essentially seeing a play on a beach, <laughs> you know, that right. feels unusual, a, a camera floating around in that space with a bunch of dead cats on the ground. It feels sort of impossible and mm. it gives our characters a kind of backdrop, a setting. It almost makes me think a bit like those Lars von Trier movies he did, like um, 
Mandalay and all that sort of stuff where there's chalk outlines on the ground instead of sets where it's kind of he's giving us a backdrop he's given us a, a, a setting against which impossible things are going to happen because it kind of feels kind of unholy to be in this space with these people uh looking at what they're looking at um yeah it's it's an uncanniness but very very subtly kind of introduced and then the uh the rest of this, this episode actually it's funny going back over summaries of these episodes because i i think i forget how much actually does happen in episodes two and three and yet how almost how slow they feel at the same time which is an interesting trick yes we've got kind of um the uh we we meet a whole bunch of kind of uh, new people. Lisa Scarborough, who is the wheelchair-bound daughter of the mayor, was paralysed after being shot by the town drunk Joe Colley, um, who becomes a you know a kind of pretty important character. So, I mean, I say she becomes; they're all kind of important characters. It's right. funny, no one no one really drops away. Um, and then we have the the big potluck festival, the big event, and and that's when Joe's dog dog dies, um, and. That again, like Joe, a character, the town drunk would often be an easy fix of a character, an easy thing mm. to discard, but they make him so human and whole. Um, and so you, you sort of know him as soon as you see him, you know. And when he yeah. weeps for his dog, you, you know, you kind of weep with him. It's, it's brutally sad. Um, you know, what happens to him? And, and obviously, everyone suspects Bev. Uh, um if it was bev well it was it just was bev yes <laughs> we're right to suspect it because it was her dog murderer i quite like that as well i like that as well it's like so transparently her you know you yeah. see her playing with rat poison in the school um you know she's ostensibly putting it out to get rid of whatever killed the cats or whatever kind of contagion is creeping on the island um you basically see the hem of her dress as a hand gives the dog a hot dog um you see every part of her kill this dog yeah i kind of and, forgot that that's brutal yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, and and I like the fact that, but again, the show's still in this mode where it's, you know, something is coming. The storm passed the night before, but it's only getting stranger. And then you have this this explosion of real heart wrenching grief for this dog from Joe Colley. If the dog's death is horrible, you know, like the watching, you know, it, it have a fit and die. Um, so you have this this moment of like very hot emotion to take the kind of the the word you had earlier, but you still don't really know what's going on, except you do know that this sort of awful um you know uh exclusionary zealot has clearly killed this man's dog like she's clearly done it but that is not where we're going dramatically right we almost move on past that that becomes part of again the kind of like fabric of kind of you know grief and pain and you start to see some of the discord within that interrelated weave of people that the show is kind of introduced in the in the first episode and this kind of um, it also introduces this sort of with her in particular this theme of like religion can be ugly religion can mm. be bad it can hurt people it can it ca- causes terrible pain you know and that and that you know it's a very cynical view of of religion which is also a very you know in a certain light true view of religion i think in the you know depending on how you interpret it you can sanction you know great evil i mean it sounds like a very pat mm. thing to say but it is kind of here isn't it it's sort of pretty key to this show um right 
And this is also the episode where, you know, uh, Riley has to attend AA meetings as part of his parole. He's, you know, been released from prison. Um, and, you know, to save him the trip to the mainland, um, Father Paul invites him to start attending essentially one-on-one AA meetings. What a nightmare. In, in Bev's, yeah, in Bev's rec centre. And these scenes, which are, I think, great, like all of the kind of um, Paul and Riley scenes, um, um, are these effectively like little debates at the heart of the show, particularly this first one about faith and about, you know, um, Paul, who is at this point established as this kind of wonderful preacher and those scenes of, um, you know, the Ash Wednesday uh, ceremony are so kind of beautifully detailed. And, and actually, even as the show through Bev shows some of the pain that can be excused through organized religion in this particular context or through faith used as a, a defense for pretty abominable actions, it also has a really powerful sense of the, the, the you know, the it, it essentially the, the healing or restorative power of, you know, uh, collective belief and, and religious ceremony. And then as this episode ends, literally manifests that when, you know, you, the first miracle occurs and at mass, um, I love this moment and I, I don't want to skip ahead if you want to talk about the, the, the bulk of this episode, but the last scene of the episode where um, during mass, um, Father Paul seems to have noticed something about Lisa, the, the wheelchair-bound girl, and invites her to stand. And the thing I love about this is how uncomfortable it makes everybody in the room, right? Seeing her parents get into like this sort of, who are starting to really warm to this charismatic young priest, look deeply offended and betrayed by this, right? The, the It is a performative step too far. It's deeply unfair and cruel. Um, but in not a kind of extravagant horror way, in a very human, um, like, it, for me, it has that the actual knot, knot of terror of, like, doing a real faux pas, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, deeply stepping wrong socially. Um, and you see that all kind of coalesce for a moment to the point where it becomes unbearable, and then she stands up and starts to walk towards him, and she is free of her wheelchair. And, I like, I yeah, it's such a, a lovely, uh, horrible... Um, and then sort of miraculous articulation of, of all the different emotions in that moment. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I, I think in this episode, the um, Ash Wednesday scene that kind of there's two church scenes, there's the scene where she during mass, and then there's a scene um, sort of halfway through the episode where he does this, because in talking about Bev, you know, the sort of evil is as evil does kind of view of religion. But actually, another thing the show does really well, amazingly, is capture what's great about religion. You know, mm. the things that are sort of inarguably wonderful about it. And he does a, a speech about the Psalms. He says, you know what Psalms are? They're songs. In the absence of light and hope, we sing, sing to the sky that God will restore us. And he also talks about how the first, Jesus's first disciples, they were fishermen, you know. Mm. Um, it's a young man's body with an older man's fervor. And what it gives us is... I, I kind of felt a kind of leaping sense in my, almost like I was watching the end of um, uh, Whiplash, you know, <laughs> kind of the end of Whiplash sort of induces euphoria in you, yeah. uh, that final scene. And and in these preaching scenes, I think Hamish Linklater does an extraordinary trick in, yeah, old man wisdom, young man's body, something weird's going on, and he's he's producing something really magical. And then that's paid off in that final scene where, You've, you've you've been taken in by him. You've been charmed by him, and then he's like, you know, doing Alan Partridge or something to get this girl to walk. Um, 
and then she does and i think the the unease that is generated there is it's pitch perfect um yeah and i think i think what's really key about it um is that unease that something sort of wonderful has happened um and over the course of this show you've been drawn into the restorative power of this person's performance and i think what you know we draw it out as a performance by hamish Linklater, and actually absolutely is it is also very crucially as we're going to discover in the next episode a performance by paul right it is a performance by paul hill a character that is being played by another character um to an extent and um, and something that's going to be really crucial to this character as the episode goes on is the fact that this is, is, is almost everyone in the town wants to forget that this is a performance and it is, but it is a hundred percent vitally important that it is a performance with multiple layers that is significant to the person performing it for reasons that haven't come to light yet. Um, and uh, as we get into episode three, I want to take this moment, uh, if I can, uh, and uh, hopefully in, in not, uh, you know, not distracting too much, um, to, uh, dunk briefly on uh james dellingpole of all people um <laughs> who wrote the funny accidentally funniest and most wrong-headed review of this show i have ever i think of almost anything i think i've ever seen and i wouldn't normally use the platform of the pod to like obviously dunk on someone specifically but i think it's a wonderful illustration of missing the point of this show um as it is being articulated in front of you so James Ellingpole, who I'm not going to link to this in the show notes because I don't really want to drive traffic his way, but he's a conservative commentator who wrote a review for The Spectator of all fucking places. And additionally said that he was turned onto the show by Ricky Gervais, which is, this is a whole, this is the territory we're in at this point, but um, has nothing but praise for Midnight Mass, seeing it as a, um, a rare thing on woke Netflix, a show that is unapologetically uh, in favor of religion and unapologetically in favor of small communities um, small uh, communities that um, support one another uh, and don't need no big government. And more to the point, he manages to be wildly um, homophobic and racist in the review, points out that its only weaknesses as a show are the the uh, plans to multiculturalism indicated by uh, Sheriff Hassan and also by the, the doctor character who is gay. Um, but aside from these things, he states the show is, uh, and I quote, this is one of the funniest things. Cause it's basically like, you know, those, uh, that meme of like photos taken moments before disaster. Um, he anchors the review on this. Uh, and I quote, midnight mass is unusual in that so far, at least I'm only two and a bit episodes in it takes Christianity at its own estimation. God is real. Miracles do happen even or especially the most miserable sinners can find redemption through repentance. Watching it is unsettling, he says, two and a half episodes in, because you keep expecting the rug to be pulled out from under your feet. And for example, the hero, Father Paul Hill, <laughs> suddenly to be revealed as an agent of Satan. And <laughs> wow. I, I love this. I love, I mean, obviously this is just a column that he's shit out for some reason, but there's, because um, he goes on to say that, obviously, because it's normally the job of clergymen on TV, um, to expose something of the uh, the complexity or hypocrisy of having people in, with power of people's emotional, spiritual lives. Um, and uh, um, <laughs> I, uh, I would love to know what he made of literally the second half of the episode he didn't watch. <laughs> um, because, because, and the reason I bring all this out, and you know, like I say, I don't, don't take great joy in, in dunking on this, but one of the things I love about this is this is somebody... Um, doing exactly what uh, the 
a lot of the characters in the show will go on to do, which is to take this performance literally as gospel, because that's what they emotionally want to need it to be. Right. You know, this person is commentating for hits and against a very particular, you know, look, you tried to use the show as a stick to be a very particular creative landscape with, um, which is exactly what people in the show do. This, 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 um, the, the fact that, uh, and this is a testament to Hamish Linklater's performance, the fact that that performance is so good and yet so nuanced that it, that it can both invite you to take, um, pleasure and hope and, and, uh, and sort of, um, uh, sort of like a restorative sort of salve sort of quality from it while at the same time being unsettling if you are unsettled by this sort of uh didacticism um is such a great trick and the fact that it has <laughs> the fact that minutes after the point where this reviewer inexplicably stopped watching the show he is going to turn out to be and we might as well just say it at this point a vampire <laughs> is very 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 funny to me it's, where it's like it is excellent. The um, the the the, uh, the this was published in, in early November, and the headline image for the article is a big picture of uh, Father Paul haloed by uh, the lights of the church, uh, with the caption: "Not since the Exorcist in 1973 has a priest been depicted as an honest to God fighter against evil." <laughs> Blimey. Um, Way to misunderstand the Exorcist as well. I know, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's like um, my mate Hugh, who watches, uh, he'll probably be listening to this, who watches the movie Titanic up to the point just before the iceberg hits. Because it's, if you watch it that way, then it's just a lovely movie about a couple a falling boat. in love on a, on a non-specific boat, you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, I didn't want to do, derail us with that, but I think I love that, like, um, I just love that. I think I think it's a wonderful thing, partly because um, I've never heard the wah, wah, wah trumpets <laughs> stronger than the second half of episode three. But we should get there, because episode three begins um with the aftermath of this um miracle and the religious revival that's about to prompt um but also crucially um it begins with the the first half of a confession scene um we kind of jump backwards in time to see father paul enter the confession booth by himself and apologize for the sin he's about to commit and start telling in impossible detail the story of father john pruitt's trip to jerusalem this is um tom tom francis nip because as we found out on the Deep Space Nine episode, uh, Tom loves a story which starts at the at the beginning, uh, starts halfway through, and then goes backwards and forwards to kind of refer back to it. Uh, so mm. uh, that's this one here. There's one for Tom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and but even even as it starts to do, it's kind of hit, we're going to start explaining now. There's some lovely little devices here, like the wood carvings, like the little woodcuts of you know the scenes from Father John Pruitt's life. If if the if the um, if the notion, if the interrelationship between performance and one's own actual history wasn't clear enough, you know, we have this literal kind of like this story being carved on tablets as uh, Paul lays it out. Um, but it doesn't quite give you the uh, the big V word. I just <laughs> I just blurted <laughs> quite at this point. No, I mean, uh, funnily enough, the show calls it an angel, which is uh, excellent fun. Yeah, well, actually, that's a, that's a really good point. I've said it now. This is a show about vampires. However, it's never going to use the word vampire. <laughs> no, it's very much the Shaun of the Dead thing, where it's like, we're not using the Z word. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, but no, I, I mean, this this episode is the one where everything kind of really kicks off. We get the... Uh, 
we get the sort of true story of of what happened to Pruitt, um, where I mean, I <laughs> the 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 way he finds this vampire, I, I was wondering because what happens is he's in Jerusalem, he's caught in a sandstorm, he discovers an ancient ruin where he is attacked by a winged, blood sucking humanoid creature that then fed him his lifeblood. Again, we're not using the V word apparently, but <laughs> there you are. Um, and I was wondering when we were sort of going through this, like, is this like a sort of Lovecraftian thing where this is his interpretation of something more cosmic? Or is this like, you know, a kind of, I, I was I was sort of half expecting this to have been shown to be, you know, untrue or, uh, but no, no, hmm. literally, literally, this is what happened. It's very Indiana Jonesy. He stumbled into an ancient tomb and met a vampire, uh, which gave him his youth, which he then decided to ship back to America with him uh, to bring to this town for various godly reasons. And ungodly reasons as well. Um, and this is, so this is the thing, right? Like, you know, so this, this, this episode juxtaposes, cause that's the end of the episode, right? Like, yes. the, is the, is him encountering the angel in the cave on the road to Damascus, which is why he subsequently calls himself Paul. Uh, I think we've, 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 we've skipped a bit there. Paul is Pruitt. That's the, that's the, uh, you know, that's the key outcome of this. Um, but, uh, the middle of this episode, the meat of it is very much about, um, uh, the people of the town in this, in the aftermath of this sort of miraculous event, you have uh, Lisa visiting Joe and basically giving him absolution. You have a series of sort of like all scenes that orbit faith, but don't necessarily address it directly. Right. Um, that really powerful scene of Lisa forgiving Joe um, for what he did to her. Um, you know, now she can walk again. That was incredible. The, that felt like yeah. a, really felt like a human being pouring sort of everything they, Ah, oh, <laughs> into the scene, yeah. you know. This is who I am. This is like I was saying at the start. This is kind of everything this character has experienced and felt across a lifetime that has been ruined by this guy, and that was just extraordinary. Yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, again, that heat of emotion. Um, then the the fact that this religious revival and a desire to be um, closer to the townspeople and more part of things, as it's put in an earlier episode, brings um, Sheriff Hassan's son Ali to church and gets him to start studying the bible uh, i love that performance as well because it's clear that it's not just you know it's not a conversion story for, for ali it's also like a a young man wanting to have friends and meet people and be part of society in this place that his father has kind of dragged him off to you know sorry it's, it's again very human and then the the scene at the school where um um you know uh sheriff hassan gives a very eloquent articulation of why bev handing out bibles at school is not appropriate um and is is sort of rebuffed with agonizing patronization from from bev and then also from really from the mayor who is sort of both sidesing this situation in a way that is sort of satisfying for nobody except the most extreme person there bev I found um, this i found that scene in particular one of the scariest in the show mm. um because the guy is making the sheriff is making such a reasonable case for separation of church and state and religious you know cooperation against the backdrop of that and for bev to kind of come out and say but uh, our religion's the real one though so it's fine you know it's essentially what she says you know christianity yeah. is is true though so it's not like your silly made up religion and you know that felt i don't know i mean there's a lot of that about isn't there in the world right now it's kind of mm. 
particularly in the age of Trump and stuff like that, these conversations actually do take place in the world. And they, yeah. you know, and I found it, yeah, I found it very scary because it, because as much as, you know, Bev, I think is sometimes a little bit too big here, the kind of banality of her, of her fervor, you know, of, of how polite she is when she cuts him down, I think was very unnerving. Yeah. And it's that, but it's the, it's the, um, unexamined certainty of a particular kind of, um, I guess I would call it like a malign certainty that she possesses, right? Um, and I think um, the fact I really liked the show is as kind of brutal as it is in that moment, and the way it allows you set, set the your sympathy to continually settle around the reasonable voices in the room. In this case, uh, Sheriff Hassan also Aaron is a consistently reasonable voice, um, and the way it, it juxtaposes these sorts of um, um, loud performative hypocritical voices against the complex interiority characters whose struggles um uh push them to the fringes is a theme that's going to continue both through 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 that trio in a big way aaron riley uh sheriff Hassan. and i would um, say as well that you know that one of the reasons the show chimes so well now i think in 2021 at the end of it mm. um as a recording is that the most charitable way you can interpret interpret trump i think and brexit and covid denial and vaccine you know denial and all that sort of stuff the most charitable way you can interpret it not the only way is that it's people wanting things to be simple <laughs> it's people wanting right. things to be easy and it's people wanting things to not not feel like they have to bear a burden of guilt or complexity you know it's so hard mm. to look at oneself and say actually there's something about the fact of who i am that means i can't necessarily understand the experiences of people who've had you know the same opportunities of me for example you know and you know and, and trump is obviously someone who gives glorious quote-unquote glorious voice to those you know terrible insecurities that we have and i think again with midnight mass in in, in the last episode and this one particularly the fact that it can be it, it, when someone offers you a light in a storm, you take it, you know, and right. how open that is to manipulation. Um, yeah. And, and why I think Midnight Mass has been made now really is that I think people are more sort of waking up to that vibe. <laughs> um, right. And I think that's, what's really key about it because I think, I think what's really, and I, uh, to get in towards the ending. So then towards the end of this episode, um, uh, Pruitt slash Paul, uh, dies. He's he. You will kind of get the the mechanism of this later, but he functionally starves to death because he hasn't been drinking blood. Um, and when he um dies, he is then kind of reborn now, uh, fully uh, in his 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 sort of um vampire form. But this is the second miracle is him coming back to life. Um, and then that leads us into this conclusion where he gets his light in the storm, literally. Um, but his is a vampire in a sandstorm, which is not quite the same thing, except how he interprets it right um he interprets vampire in a sandstorm as his you know beacon of light as an angel and um something that i think is really key here and really significant is that um yes it's sort of odd to get suddenly like a, a full-on big winged prosthetic Buffy the vampire ass, big old vampy <laughs> boy, right in the middle of your deeply interconnected and, and, and sensitive show about faith and and, and, and relationships and, and life and, and, and trauma and so on. However, one of what it does really successfully, I think, 
is you'll there'll be a few more mechanisms of vampirism in this particular take on it to learn but not a lot actually you get a lot of it quite quickly in terms of how this works and how Pruitt understands this works and actually and this is later voiced through the uh through the doctor as well um is quite a uh a grounded take on vampirism um so much so that it gives you all the tools you need with a little bit of hand waving to understand this is purely a uh scientific phenomena right it has a particular way it works uh yes it's unlikely but it's also uh it's also quite a self-contained as a kind of uh, uh an addition to the the universe of the show um like a relatively scientific take on, on vampirism in an environment that is highly superstitious. And that's really key for me, I think, because it means that the symbolic meaning that these characters are subsequently going to draw from the angel and its revelations, Paul's relationship with Pruitt's relationship with it, what he's trying to get out of it, um, is explicitly in the realm of symbolism, mysticism, um, existential belief on the part of the characters of the show, not just on the part of us as viewers. And this I think answers an issue I have with some of Hannigan's earlier stuff, which is, as I've said, like ghosts in, in, in Bly Manor and, and Hill House are explicitly supernatural manifestations of real trauma, real addictions, betrayals, you know, uh, uh, tragedies in people's lives. However, they are also literally supernatural beings in this universe. And Bly Manor specifically, not to get into spoilers for Bly Manor, because I do really, really enjoy it. I think in its second half, Get slightly too concerned with the mechanics of ghosts in this universe and it's it's um it's finale which I, I like in many ways still hinges on you kind of getting this developing understanding of how ghosts work which for me moves away from the point which is what ghosts represent and i think there's a really nice moment here where where with with midnight mass specifically where actually the supernatural heart of this show the answer to the big mystery that creeps up on you in the first couple of episodes which is encouraging all of this interpretive work is it's the fucking vampire and that's it, right? It's just, this is the effect of, you know, one one big old vampire on this community that was like a powder keg primed for this sort of detonation anyway. And in doing so, strangely, despite how much it being a vampire show should dominate your conversation about it as a genre piece, it is almost simply um, a motivating force that then doesn't take over, actually. And I find that really compelling. Yes, I would agree. And I think I think that's very well put. I think, you know, there's... The thing I think that the show never says out loud, but is everywhere, and it's something I said earlier, is the idea of, you know, the, the blood takes the shape of the chalice. What you pour mm. the sacrament into, it takes that shape. And so into this guy, he's turned, you know, vampirism and being infected by this virus into a gift from God. Um, and I think that is thematically central to the show. In the next episode, mm. we see two characters talk at length about their belief about what happens when you die. This mm. beautiful central scene to the show that the show returns to again. And what that, what you sort of see in that is that there's beauty in the religious interpretation and beauty in the humanistic interpretation. They actually approach the same point, and the show makes a point of, of putting a button, button on this in the final episode as well. Mm. And for me, that kind of that is kind of what makes the show feel really glorious because it is about what you choose to do what's, with what's given to you. That religion can be a glorious thing. You know, if used correctly, mm -hmm. but it can also be a dreadful thing if used wrongly. And the blood of this vampire, you know, is taken by this guy 
and he puts his own frames of reference on it and and uses it and then as we continue in the show we'll learn that there's some quite selfish reasons for doing what he's doing that have very little to do with religion whatsoever you know he wants yeah. to res- restore his past love um uh and i think again that is what makes this show feel so full um is that the humans are are subject to this supernatural force but as someone says in the final episode, you know, you still have a choice. You can still fight against your instincts if you just mm-hmm. apply yourself to it. Yeah, there's a really nice moment as so uh, in this in the fourth episode, I believe this is when, um, you know, uh, Paul finally kind of becomes incapable or Pruitt, as we know now, becomes kind of incapable of containing um, what he's become and kills and drinks f- from Joe. Um, in a horrible scene of, you know, again, like I, I, I saw an interview, interview with uh, Hamish Linklater about this, who's not really done horror before. And this scene where he's sort of cradling Joe's, you know, body in his, in his hands, but it's just lapping blood from his fractured skull. is just like a cat is, is um, horrible and kind of amazing at the same time as a, as a depiction of vampirism. Um, it reminded me of a similar scene in I'm trying to remember the name the Guillermo del Toro movie from the early 90s. Ooh, mm. I can't remember the name of it, but it has an old man licking blood off a off a bathroom floor, which is similarly uh, yeah horrifying. And then and then the kind of key bits of um, you know um, we're obviously getting we haven't really talked about Mildred and Sarah very much. Sarah's the Doctor and um, and the relationship that. Um, Paul appears to have with Mildred. I have to admit, I did see the kind of Mildred de-aging thing coming because that their aging up makeup isn't peerless <laughs> in terms of... Oh, it's of, so it's, stupid. You see her in the first place like, and you go, well, there's a character who's going to get younger because that's clearly yeah. a 25-year-old woman. <laughs> yeah, it is. I still kind of love the kind of slight staginess of that, but that's a guilty pleasure rather than an actual, like, good job everybody thing. Um, if you see um, True Detective Series 3, the aging makeup they've given for Mahashala Ali in that is it makes you... It's like a thing where you see it and you go, oh, that's how you do it. Like, right. like that's the first time someone's done it so well um <laughs> yeah anyway very, very uh, badly but, um, done here <laughs> yeah it is badly done here um also in the flash forwards where hamish like later is aged up to be pruitt in jerusalem you also get the kind of like hmm that man looks like hamish Linklater later wearing a lot of makeup oh <laughs> you could have <laughs> just got an old man you <laughs> could have just got an old man um but um but i because i appreciate we, there's there's a lot to get through but um you know, we start to see, you know, we get to in this episode now that we know it's it's vampires, everybody, we get to know a bit more about that. But the thing that's kind of um really I really enjoyed about this episode, this really big subversion, is you know, Bev and um the mayor and Sturge, the handyman, uh coming across uh Father, you know, um Pruitt, and actually Bev has figured out who he is already, um coming across him having just killed Joe and going well, we're going to have to cover this up rather than that come, you know, like the fact that this was almost this instantaneous, um, like cabal formed in that moment. Right. And I think something that I thought, I thought was really fun about it is how it has fun with the notion of like thraldom as well. Bev at this moment effectively becomes thrall to the vampire, which is a trope that goes back to, you know, Dracula really. And then that kind of, you know, she's the, she's the Renfield in this story. Um, but, 
it happens completely naturally and without trauma. For her, it's just, and this is again to what you were saying about the power of the wrong kind of faith to excuse anything. She looks at this person who has just done this tremendously evil thing uh, and says, well, that's God. Uh, And then begins this process of elevating him to the status of sort of Messiah. And uh, more than that, you have this then sense that they almost adopt and kind of uh, supplicate themselves to the predatory nature of of faith that the the flock literally the flock is being divided into wolves and sheep before their eyes and that is accepted as not just a kind of inevitability but a good thing and a true thing you know there's that phrase good and true that kind of gets repeated a few times in the show um, which is a really interesting juxtaposition of words and in, and they're actually an articulation of like I think, uh, what's so so horrible about that moment where they look at you know because because crucially Pruitt John uh, Paul has feels shame and regret and fear in that moment until he doesn't until he believes that it's been purged from him by God and that's like ah uh, it's so rich I really really think it's it's a very clever piece it's of sort of kind textures of textures of um sort of uh, Lord of the Flies as well in the yeah that that kind of tendency to arrange yourself into a pattern where there is the kind of lead figure and then the enforcer and then the kind of zealot and kind of how easily human beings seem to succumb to those things, you know, succumb yeah. to those patterns when we see something like this. It's interesting because uh, I hadn't picked up on this. Obviously I wouldn't have done the first time I watched it, but rewatching the beach opening beach scene from episode two, um, uh, the mayor explicitly says about the cats on the narrows. I think it's the narrows. It's it's like Lord of the Flies for them out there, and that scene is that scene is explicitly about the cats are all dead, and the next step is to burn them, and so it's not subtle what that's foretelling, <laughs> you know. Yeah. This, um, but um, I thought the um, you know um, I thought th- there's like a, a strong line of that, and it seems obviously very intentional. Yeah, and that's very good background- as well because because in this episode as well we finally meet the angel, and uh, the angel is is going to is going to do exactly well treating the angel like an angel rather than the vampire it clearly clearly is, really is. big fingers <laughs> um uh it you know it, it's treating the humans on this island exactly as it did the cats you know it it's su- i love how much of a disgusting monster it is just a yeah. hungry hungry <laughs> it's like no amount of no amount of pruitt putting hats on it is going to yeah. make it less less of a less of a monster yeah yeah, it's very good. I, I really like the sequences where it's where it's dressed up uh, in the church later down a line, and it's doing a very good sort of dog trying not to steal a biscuit off a table acting. You know, <laughs> yeah. I think that's what I love about it because you know normally when we have vampires in fiction, or you know a kind of Dracula type vampire at least, we have a creature. You know, often what they stand in for is like everything that is predatory and antisocial about being a human being and consciously so right if you have a werewolf as sort of a kind of feral predatory murderous streak within human nature that is then given kind of like uncontrollable uh voice through these transformations and you have vampires as you know typically the sort of the structured aristocratic form of that the kind of the the you know the violence inherent to um uh you know malicious power rendered in an intelligent body like and and you know this combination of animalistic violence and then sophistication and i love don't that forget that is, don't forget horniness as well which they also yeah yeah right yeah and but that's also tied into the right sort of like um this sort of conflation of id and um 
intelligence, right? Like there's nothing scarier than our baser passions indulged with a kind of, you know, uh, a sophisticated air. And in this, one thing I love about this version of vampirism is it's completely split. You have Pruitt on one side and the angel on the other. And the angel is explicitly pretty much an animal, right? Like, as you say, it's a, you know, a dog trying not to steal a sausage off the table that, <laughs> and, and, you know, the show basically is saying like, you can put a hat on this thing, but you're not, you're not changing it. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, there's the, the, the show creates questions that it doesn't answer in terms of like how Pruitt really communicates with it or how they establish an understanding or how he convinces it to get in a box. Um, <laughs> but, um, but his sort of struggle to control it, like, and this episode is the one that ends with, so, you know, against the backdrop, Riley figures out that Pruitt's lying about Joe's disappearance and he goes to confront him at the rec center. Um, you know, um, um, their meetings have gotten to a point of tension over this. They, well, there's a lovely moment where their one-on-one AA meetings get to a point where they're almost in accord with one another until Riley catches what was obviously a lie about Joe. And then he decides not to go meet Erin, um, who he's had that conversation about death with, but to go just find out what's going on with Paul and just walks in on the angel decanting its blood into the chalice um, and immediately gets full-on jump-scared to death. <laughs> um and you know, uh, like uh, full on creepy pasta style, and that is I, I really like. Kind of, this is again one of those like moments of escalation where we have just we just sort of abruptly lose. It seems um, a significant point of view character, um, due to, because of the inevitably the inevitable impossibility of containing this huge long fingered secret. Um, and the effect that it's rapidly and the its impact, the fact that the notion that its impact on people um, through its secret is uncontrollable, right? Yes. Like he has invited a serious predator into their midst, and you know, literally a wolf into the flock, and all he can do is do a surprised Pikachu face at what happens next. <laughs> I love because he's in the rec center and he's kind of going mad from thirst. He's run out of the the blood vampire blood to put in the in the Eucharist wine, which is what he's been doing. And there's a it's one of my it's one of the coolest moments in the show because the camera is in that rec center and then and sort of on him and then it just tilts and the vampire is there with a hat on in the doorway and it walks through the room um and uh, and fills up the eucharist it's the fir- i think it's the first time you sort of properly see it now you've seen mm. it in the flashbacks but you haven't sort of seen it wandering around with a hat on um and i love that bit that's great and then yeah it's, it, the timing of it riley comes upon this scene and then it jumps at him and you're right it's a very good creepypasta jump scare because it just sort of flies literally right at us um yeah yeah no brilliant ending <laughs> there's a there's a few um there's a there's a few beats i think we've we've that are important here actually as well, which is that um, throughout the island as well at this time, this sort of steady sense, I mean, as we come to understand, oh God, it's a vampire. This is all very bad. The island is starting to deal with the positive effects of having been fed vampire blood, right? Like um, Riley's dad gets his mojo back in quite a significant way. Um, there's, um, there's, you know, people are being healed, people are feeling better. Um, and then in all of that, and it's a really significant moment. And again, a horrible moment. Erin um, loses her baby, but she doesn't just lose her baby. It's like she was never pregnant. She just, you know, she wakes up one day. She actually sees the vampire briefly in, a, in the window. And then um, when she goes in for her next, she feels strange. When she goes in for her next scan, the baby is gone. 
and I found this one of the saddest moments in the show when you stump, when you as the audience begin to clock what has happened, and then it's a, you, it's then explained by Sarah, the Doctor, and the Doctor on the mainland as well, that um, to the to the human body in that moment, the 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 unborn child is a is an alien presence, basically, you know, it is an external presence, and so this kind of quote unquote healing vampire magic blood is having the effect of causing Aaron's body to heavy quotes, you know, restore itself. And in doing so, this horrible tragedy takes place. And and I think that's a really crucial beat because it's right in the heart of the middle of the show. It's obviously central to her character and where her character will go next and the heartbreak. And it actually is the thing that leads to that conversation about death between her and Riley. But also really crucially, it show, it's, an, it's one of the key ways that shows that what Pruitt is bringing into the island is unnatural and a lot of the, the as we get into the second half of the show a lot of what has been articulated is about endings right this island is ending before we we get to know it um you know there's there's uh monsignor pruitt there's a line about how he should have you know kind of he, you know he was a lot sicker than people thought he should have died there's this notion about accepting um natural patterns of birth and death and endings and that what um what uh the sort of deathless figure, this this concept of deathlessness that Pruitt and his faith has brought into the island is deeply anti, uh, deeply unnatural, and um, and therefore disconnected from the um, the needs, the real needs of of the people he believes he is serving, and I, I I find that I find that whole the set scenes with Aaron quite hard anyway. But also, I think they're really necessary because of the way they um, start to show the way that this um, whatever it is, you're not quite sure at this point what Pruitt is actually trying to do, but the way that whatever he is trying to do is, um, I was going to say, sort of like you know, um, uh, contrary to, uh, humanity in a way, but it is also sort of equally in that moment, obviously contrary to the show's understanding of God as well. And I think it's interesting as that, uh, as that whole sort of theme develops, how it sort of positions in the way that you articulated about that conversation about death, how actually a lot of these sort of characters with greater empathy arrive at some of the similar conclusions except where this power is introduced that ultimately kind of corrupts and, and twists that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I also, I, I agree. I found that scene in the, where she, her baby has just sort of vanished from her womb. It was very, very frightening prospect, you know, and, and I think, you know, the person writing it likely, you know, or someone involved has likely had some experience of something like that because I think it mm. felt very true. And I think the way she processes it, later is very very moving um yeah and another good example of how the show because her her conception of how you know heaven works at this moment it feels plausible it feels close to us and the character she's talking to she's talking to riley about it and he is listening to her wrap in rapt attention at what she's saying he's not disregarding what she's saying he's not even necessarily not believing in it, even though he doesn't. And I think, I don't know, there's something extraordinarily honest about about that moment. Yeah. And I think one thing that's really crucial is that, um, particularly as we get into the, um, the next episode, 
is really the show I think has um, probably more than four, but four key characters whose empathy allows them to start passing back and forwards across this bridge between, you know, uh, faith and a more humanitarian outlook or, or what have the many different ways the show cuts it. Erin um, Riley, uh, Sheriff Hassan, and also, um, also Pruitt himself, except for the fact that Pruitt is the one with the keys to all of that divine power, both literally in his access to the vampire, but also through his kind of oratorical skill. And yet, and then, and what's really interesting is you, you have this, the scene in the, in the, in the fifth episode where he delivers his first, like truly fire and brimstone sermon, right? The soldiers of God speech. Um, which is sort of, you can see is driving the, the town to the point, to the edge, really. Um, um, this is against the backdrop of Riley's disappearance and it alienates um, Mildred, who is getting younger by the day, who is clearly the woman, you know, it's building to this revelation that it will get to that Mildred and Pruitt had a relationship in the past and the outcome of that relationship was Sarah, you know, and it alienates her and it creates this split in his character between what it is that he's actually there to do if he was honest with himself and the performance again, to return to that word that he is conducting around it and now being supported in conducting by Bev and her particular malign faith and Sturge and his loyalty, the mayor and his fear. And these are all sort of like, um, it's really telling to me that this, you know, episode, which is also about the kind of the beginning of a, as they say, a new gospel, a new set of apostles, um, has at its center, um, that the, the deep hypocrisy that is created in many ways by Pruitt's empathy and his humanity. And that's a, a, yeah, it's a, a, that, that theme is going to come out more and more and more, but it's, I find it really, really kind of engaging to go back to it. I liked, you know, in his speeches in this episode where he's talking about, you know, prepare for war as soldiers in God's army. And I was, it's funny, just last night I was watching a documentary, which is on HBO called Exterminate All the Brutes, which is a really good documentary about the history of colonialism. And it talks about in that, about the how the very idea of, of religious crusade was in fact a, a, an enterprise for money they wanted to open up trade routes to the east and dominate them and racial purity was this sort of fringe benefit of it and in that documentary the the filmmaker traces the the founding of the spanish inquisition to find out you know whether jews were really converting and muslims were really converting as the kind of fundamental foundation of blood purity in, in culture in, in your, in Western civilization and stuff like that. And I, I, you know, and obviously that the Catholic church was at the center of all that. And so when a guy stands up and starts talking about, you know, soldiers in God's army, um, you know, it I, very, very unnerving to see. And, and, and you've lost, I think all of that, power that you're feeling from him earlier on in the show i'm not along mm. for this ride you know and lots of people in the in his congregation are, are feeling un, uncertain about it too um yeah i just thought that was an interesting you know when you start talking about god's war what a, as soon as someone says that it's very frightening even though yeah. it's all there in the bible <laughs> they quote it right. at length. <laughs> and it's it's also what it's covering for and i think so the, there's two, this episode has like the ending of this episode i think is my favorite thing in, in any mike flanagan show um, so Riley vanishes for most of this episode. Aaron is looking for him. Um, well, we obviously know he's been attacked by, um, 
Mr. Longfingers, the spooky, <laughs> the spooky hat wearing vampire, um, the angel. And, um, and, and then, but in this, in his absence, you know, um, Paul is kind of rising to this, you know, rhetorical height. And, and again, as you say, more distant from you. And I think that's also as the viewer. And I think that's represented in the show by his, the distance this is creating between him and Mildred, who is obviously more and more important, obviously more and more important character to him. Um, and I think that represents the distance from his own humanity. And then you have Riley's reappearance on Aaron's doorstep. He takes her out in a boat and Riley's been having these repeated dreams where he's alone in a boat. Um, actually, I think my first um, clue that this was going to be a vampire show was that when he explains that dream and he says that he always wakes up before it gets light. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's what's going to happen to him. Yeah. I sort of saw that coming, but I assumed it would be the last scene of the whole show, actually. No. I didn't think it would be two episodes from the end. And he takes Aaron out in a boat and then through flashback or through, you know, uh, his, he tells her the story. We see this through flashback. He tells the story about waking up in the rec center, now a vampire, um, being sort of, in, you know, induced into this coven, um, you know, that Bev doesn't really want him there because she doesn't, she sees him as kind of godless. Um, but Pruitt is nothing but gracious and inclusive and takes care of him fatherly, both of the capital F and the lowercase f. Um, and he rejects it and i love this ending for this character because and then you know because it's so ambiguous until the end and it almost this is a, a one thing i think is really strong about this show is it has many depictions of capital f faith to go with that and also lowercase faith and um and this is something that um and it tests your ability to have faith in riley and who you believe him to be this is someone who is wrestling with guilt for the young woman he killed in a, in a drink driving accident who is literally haunted by her he is the only person who really possesses a ghost in the traditional sense in this and that she shows up in his in his vision but not in a, not necessarily in a real way or so on we'll, we'll get to that um he's haunted by her he is wrestling with this he is also doing this work through aa of um, trying to fix himself and specifically trying to fix himself without the assistance of faith that he has lost. Uh, it's implied that at the beginning of the show, when he is sentenced, he accepts his imprisonment and he's told he will be served either four to 10 years. And then almost immediately the show says four years later, which sort of, you know, indicates that he's let out early. Whatever you think about whether that's appropriate or not, the point is he is sort of single-mindedly focused. You, it appears on co literally conquering the, this part of himself that he loathes and that he associates with so much deep regret, both for the life that he took, the life he never had with Erin, all of these things. And very much a lot of that centers around his ability to conquer his own addiction. And what this means is you have this character and, and this, the, the performance of Riley is really specific because he's like a, he, he is a handsome man, but he was folded and crumpled in on himself almost all of the time, including when he goes to see Erin and he asks for this last conversation. And then there is the moment in the boat where she articulates, like, why did you take me here? Did you tell me, why did you tell me this story that she doesn't believe? Why did you, you know, why have you separated me? If you're trying to frighten me, I've been frightened worse by worse because she has, you know, suffered terribly at the hands of men as well. And, and then what it kind of reveals about him is this really profound inner strength that he can conquer his addiction and initially to alcohol, but now to blood. And as pat as that sounds, it, it, puts a completely different light on Pruitt. It exposes him as someone who can't conquer his addictions or his wants, um, who actually doesn't have the strength to 
do the right thing. Uh, and and Riley makes no attempt to justify it to himself. And um, but what it, I, and I, I love the moment at the end where he basically just says, "I came here on this little rowboat out to sea to isolate myself." And because I, 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 I and and I love the moment where he says to Aaron, "I want you to run away. I know you're going to row back and try and help them. So you need to know the truth of this." And then as the sun rises, um, he then sees the young woman that he killed sitting in the boat opposite him, now completely restored, smiling at him. And then it cuts to Eren screaming and screaming and screaming as he combusts and collapses in the sun. And then that screaming continues over the credits for like three minutes. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. And that whole moment I found, like, the show goes for another two episodes and I think it goes to really powerful places. But a lot of the show's humanity, I think, is bundled up in that moment through Riley and giving him this sort of heroic ending in a way that comes not from his ability to kill the vampire, apart from himself, actually, in that moment, but through his ability to conquer his sort of selfish need, like his selfishness in a way that Pruitt can't, to understand something about the people he loves that Pruitt doesn't. Um, and then, and then, uh, do the right thing. And then in that final moment where he, you know, his death vision of, of the woman he killed is almost explicitly a, Hey buddy, welcome to heaven moment. Yeah. She he has starts, these just mo- as she starts to lift him up. Yeah. Um, that's when we cut to her perspective. Yeah. And, um, and this is juxtaposed with the fact that his vampire sight that lets him see blood and light in particular ways creates a sort of radiant sense of the cosmos as well. And in this one moment, like the door is just suddenly flung open to any number of possible, you know, afterlife scenarios in the same way that his sort of fairly scientific understanding of death and Aaron's initially sort of um, highly uh, Christian sense of death intermingle as they talk to one another in that, in his last moments, he gets both as well. And he's the only character to get that, I think, apart from Aaron herself. And I just, yeah, I just think it's, a, it's as scary as it is and as horrible as it is in that moment. It's also such a kind of, um, it almost feels like quite a kind of um, sort of defiant victory for this character. Uh, yeah, it's it's glorious, I think. In a, in a they do very, clever things with in, time, in, in so you're not necessarily expecting it. I know you were because you're savvy to it. But they do a very yeah. clever job of of you're not necessarily expecting the sun to rise, or at least I wasn't uh, at that ah. moment. Then, but then, of course, it does, and it's with glorious finality and inevitability. I think. Yeah, and I think it's like it also tees us up for the end of the show, right? Like, it's, I would that's also where it's going. I would also say about those 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 rec center scenes in this episode where uh, Pruitt is kind of giving him the lowdown on what what this is all about you know and mm. telling him you know he he gets him to feed and then says do you feel at peace and if you feel at peace then don't you doesn't that tell you that you're doing the lord's work you know and and, and that is the kind of um you know that is the kind of lie that pruitt keeps trying to sell to him that he doesn't feel any guilt and yeah. we're talking about this in the deep space nine pod last week actually like being troubled by the fact you don't feel guilt and why you should or shouldn't be troubled by that and I think it was fascinating because I think one of the definitions you could make of a cult is that they they give you one experience whilst telling you it's another, you know, mm. one way or another they sell a lie to you and then and then sort of put you in a position where you're going to interpret that in a certain way. And vampirism in this when you're he's sort of out looking at the lights and stuff like that is psychedelic. It's a it's a sort of drug yeah. um, experience. Um 
and the fact that he's been in AA as part of his own journey and trying to stay off another drug. Again, I think that, as you were saying, basically, it just all adds to the triumph that this guy is too is has learned enough in his life <laughs> to uh, be strong enough to resist this particular cult's influences. You know. Um, yeah, it puts it puts paid to the notion of easy solutions, which is going to be really crucial going towards the end. Right? Yes. Like it, it's, it's, there isn't a, you know, without, without, and I think this is really crucial, particularly because we get to the next episode and the sort of scientific explanations for things, it doesn't then, but it also doesn't close the door on faith. And I think that's really important. I think, you know, I think we both feel the same way about this, that having this be ultimately like a faith versus science uh, thing or a religion versus secularism thing would be a huge misfire. It sort of articulates that ultimately, I think, sort of empathy and meaningful work and also acceptance of you know the line that keeps coming up the 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 wisdom to accept the things you can't change right this this uh this thing this this line that pruitt keeps repeating to riley is really important to the show and it's something that is the absolute core of pruitt's um hypocrisy and um, Riley, Riley does surrender himself to a higher power. <laughs> he surrenders exactly. himself to the sun, <laughs> the highest yeah, of all right. powers. <laughs> right? Yeah, the, the literally the unconquered sun. And like, yeah, this guy could go on about this all day. But like, yeah, there's there's um um there's there's a I think a very humane understanding of the role that faith plays in those moments, as well as the role that meaning, like the, the person to person empathy and meaningful hard work plays in getting a good outcome, even if in a good outcome ends in like three minutes of screaming in this case. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. So, I mean, with, with Riley gone, then we get into the, episode, the last two episodes, really, we get into the, the, the kind of the run of the ending, which is going to be very much like, well, uh, we got ourselves a big vampire problem and a cult problem. Um, I mean, what- you, you did sort of hint yeah. on it just then, but like, I do think you're probably right that at the end of episode five is the kind of apotheosis, haha, of mm. of this show. And I think I've got thoughts and hashtag feelings on the last two episodes. I Go still think they're very good. I think the show is, you know, a very literary, literate horror show, and I think what happens now is it kind of changes direction because up to this point, it's been, I mean, and and forgive me because I'm a genre fan and I don't mean to disparage Mm. horror at all, but I feel like it's been from a kind of literary world pressing into the horror world. It's kind of, it's starting with the characters and it, and I think you could probably define literary fiction as some kind of, you know, an attempt to engage with the complications of human emotions and time and perspective and stuff like that. Not that horror fiction doesn't, but I think literary fiction is is a is a particular sort of way of doing that. And what I feel like in these last two episodes is it comes at it from the other side. We're very much increasingly in an oh god vampires zombie movie, um, mm. and I still think there's glorious stuff in there, and the characters are still there too. But be- I, I don't know. There's almost like a polarity change in in how the show operates from this point onward which i'm less enamored with although i still think it as i say I yeah not to say for it i think this is something that has ha- um is also the case in some of the other flanagan shows as well it happens i like this version of it more because the rules are a little simpler and i think because the it the a lot of the decisions that get made sort of make sense although it starts to fray at the edges a little bit we have um we have we effectively have our scooby gang form basically right like the 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 league of people who aren't quite sure about this um assemble 
Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Sarah, her rejuvenated mother, Mildred, Erin, who now has the kind of truth of things, and then later uh, the sheriff, um, the kids, right? We have our kind of gang of, of heroes basically at this point, and they start their plan to kind of to, to burn the boats to to kind of flee the, to, to kind of trap the townspeople to kind of avoid what's coming next. Um, and then you have obviously like the big, the big revelation as Paul reveals himself to be Pruitt introduces um, the angel um, to a terrified and locked in church congregation. And then the kind of, you know, I mean, you're talking about cult, you know, cult imagery. There's nothing about like a kind of, you know, the, drinking poison in a church to ascend is as explicit as this show gets in that regard right like this i mean that's i find that seems very hard right like the very very you know, frightening i thought it's very frightening like people being told that if they kill themselves they'll be reborn um in god's in god's army basically as a vampire because that's you know the mechanics of it and how it works um and the um the sort of uh like steady um escalation of this moment the fact that it's ultimately going to rip mildred um sarah and pruitt apart even though he's done it for them um the kind of rapid deaths of, of many characters but also as you say the kind of emergence of that kind of like action horror kind of survival scenario out of this there's a line where um you know and it I don't hate it, but it is there. It is. I have some thoughts about it where um, Bev stops the kind of Scooby gang from escaping the church and says, you know, she hasn't killed herself yet. And I actually, one thing I really like about this is how you start to see her actual fear of death, right? Like that, you know, the sort of some of the emptiness of her own, you know, that underneath her external, um, you know, kind of almost like cartoonish didacticism, there's a lot of deep fears and doubts and, it's like, you know, sort of uh, God really doesn't kind of walk with her, making her feel better, uh, giving her support. Yeah, she's, she's doing a run. She's terrified. She's <laughs> yeah. doing, she tries to run and then, um, you know, blocks the passage of the, the other characters who are trying to escape and says, you know, if you, if you, you know, if you shoot, you know, if you kill me, I'll be, I'll be, you know, back in five minutes, right? She'll, she'll be reborn. Uh, and Aaron shoots her and says, we've got five minutes, which is very funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's also like almost a, it's almost a, it's almost a bit too hard of a one liner. You know what I mean? It's almost like we've, you know, we, we gain like, I think it's probably the show's first bant. Yeah. It's a very like, low on bant show, really. It is really low bant. And then we get this kind of like, I mean, she doesn't like, you know, twirl, twirl the gun in her hands and reholster it, but there is a kind of moment of like, well, you know, like we've settled into our genre now, giddy up cowboy time um, let's go buffy i mean aaron <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um that's it i didn't I, you know i but also actually part of me was kind of i find like found myself almost like grateful for the catharsis of this whole sequence in a way not in terms of the fact that it's a whole lot of fun to watch people getting slaughtered and their town burnt down but there's a sense of like all of that that you know that 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 um, powder keg tension has now detonated right and you're watching the individual pieces fall where they may literally watching the ash fall which is like a recurring thing yes and uh lots i mean like this is how most stephen king books end i think mm-hmm. <laughs> and i kind of i enjoyed i enjoyed that i have to say like in the adaptations that they've done of 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 king's sort of epic town goes wrong type books uh you know these bits tend to be kind of 
less important. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they, and also the characters are never as richly drawn as you'd like them to be. And I did like seeing our Scooby gang, you know, against the odds here, particularly as hopeless as it begins to seem as well, with all the, all the fires and all the death and all the zombies and uh, all that going on. It's, it's, um, you know, I, there is, there is cathartic in, catharsis in it. I think that church scene, isn't cathartic it's just horrible um yeah i agree and the, the fact that there's sort of rolling people dying and then resurrecting and then killing other people and all that kind of stuff i, I mean i found that again it's a very true feeling scene that kind of enclosed panic enclosed chaos claustrophobia mm-hmm. it felt like you know lots it felt like a very true uh examination of the worst of humanity to be honest um and the one-liner in the uh, vest vestry uh, afterwards is is yeah probably doesn't chime necessarily that well with the brutality of that but it does uh sort of announce uh what's going to happen next which is lots of running around in the dark and shouting <laughs> yeah well that's the thing is it's literally the starting gun for the for the kind of the left for dead level that will follow you know what i mean like um and but in a way it's like i think one of the things that genre can do here is offer you that kind of like um but particularly these long burn tv horror shows i think and this is actually i think one of the things that's hard going about hill house sometimes is it's a long time to spend tense you know yeah a movie might get this from you for 90 minutes two hours this show gets it from you for 10 and i think you almost need this moment where like um where where the tension releases and you start to see the consequences of things and you see almost like you almost gain the same clarity that the characters do in terms of like well this is what we've got to do and in a way all of these characters are scooby gang the thing that's key about them is they all resolve to die basically they all resolve to face their own deaths and save you know the the one thing i don't like here is they they kind of explicitly say well we have to save the world right like if this stuff gets to the mainland it's the end of everything i find that a bit grand to some extent like i think it doesn't really need that you know it's like it's enough for it to have to die with the island right yeah it feels a little um, bit jurassic park that doesn't it it, it, it does it does yeah actually that's exactly right yeah it's like there's that logic that um it, it can't you know but this is this is a trope of zombie movies normally right like that sort of we need we need to kind of walk into annihilation rather than um allow the kind of unnatural force of undeath to spread any further because it is inevitably <laughs> going to get everywhere um but just that that aside i quite like that moment where it's like all those characters realize well we're fucked basically but also the you know the thing to do here is what riley did right like you know resist it um and then have this almost like structured scientific approach clinical approach It's, it's it's i don't think an accident that it's the doctor who kind of is really central to a lot of this planning clinical approach to cauterizing this wound this kind of unnatural thing that's occurred that is enabled and supported by the faith and the humanity of the characters doing it right and the love they have for each other in their their place and that is the faith that is erin's faith it's her kind of growing sense of the universe it's um it's pruitt's faith indeed as it kind of finally reasserts itself right at the end (laughs) and he realizes that what he's doing is deeply wrong it's it's hassan's faith as well and that i think is a really key like marriage of the two right the solution to this to such to the extent that it is comes from all of this and through empathy and humanity rather than it being a victory of one over the other 
Yes, I mean, he has a lovely, in his, hi, my name is Steve, and this is what I'm all about scene. He talks about, you know, um, working in, in the police in, in New York following 9-11 and becoming part of the kind of anti-terrorism sort of uh, push at the time, and then that turning on him and him becoming, you know, it's, it's a kind of argument he makes for non-intervention, for keeping yourself out and staying quiet and staying subservient for your own safety, which he then, you know, he then contradicts in these in these final episodes by being, you know, a real hero and 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 running into the fight um in the way that he kind of originally intended to after after 9-11, you know. Um yeah. he, he wanted to be the hero or he wanted to do good and then it was it was kind of taken away from him by mistrust. Um yeah. And explicitly by racism. And I think there's a real, um, Rahul Kohli is really interesting in, in the way he articulates kind of what he was thinking about this performance, particularly. Um, and he's just very interesting on the subject of his performances anyway. But, but there's an interesting thing with, with, um, Hassan where like he explicitly is the, the gunslinger from out of town in this show. Like I was kind of joking about like the kind of Western element to it towards the end, but he has the kind of the bearing and the swagger of a kind of, um, you know, uh, man with no name type or a kind of the, the lawmaker who comes into this, the lawman who comes into this sort of powder keg and finds himself at the heart of it, but is kept on the fringe of it by, by explicitly by sort of, uh, racism and mistrust. And as you say, makes this case for why he's had to make this decision to, um, sort of, parlay with those forces for his own for the safety of his son basically and then seeing him get his hero moment in the church really where he will not sit down and take it where he will not stand by and his what happens to him is 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 really horrible as it is to most characters um and you know the kind of the fact that he's betrayed by his son is is really hard i think to watch but i think it's it's sort of um I really liked the way the show um, sort of asserts and reasserts not just Sheriff Hassan's like strength and conviction to do the right thing, but his sort of dignity in that all the way to the end. And dignity is something that he he talks about explicitly. And the fact that it is a heroic sort of dignity um, in a place that the... Uh, the people of this of of Crockett Island, because of their racism in this case, do not think they will find it, and that I think is key to actually. To be honest, I think that is then the key theme that binds all of our kind of eventual heroes, basically. Um, yes, and it's it's interesting that they all draw their strength from something true and real and tangible in their lives, yeah. rather than something that they can't see or touch. You know. Um, mm. And you get to see Bev in the final episode at one point, you know, like um, drinking out of someone's neck like an animal, which is uh, a, a great moment for her, actually, when she's sort of stalking yeah. around telling everyone what to do and then seeing her overcome with hunger. Uh, and actually, it's Flynn's mum, isn't it, that she, uh, sorry, not Flynn, Riley's mum that she, uh, that she um, pounces yeah. on and eats. <laughs> um, yeah, Riley's, yeah, God, yeah, talk about that. Like, um, and also like her very and i think we're conflating the last two episodes here a little bit but that's probably fine like yes. her very ending where like she you know she almost walks to the beach to die in the sunlight with <laughs> dignity and then starts to dig in the sand like i loved Bev digging say, a hole. 
like say the dog she murdered earlier um and like yeah. but, but the the sort of the moment of that of like is this show going to give bev some dignity in the end wait a minute you're talking about dog murderer bev keen absolutely not <laughs> like <laughs> and absolutely. yeah it's not subtle but it is it is um entertaining yeah. I mean, I think we can talk about these last couple of episodes together because basically everything goes crazy. Um, everyone's killing each other. Everyone's murdering each other. There's lots of double crossings. Um, you know, several, most, well, all of our characters die apart from two. Everyone dies yep. in this show apart from two people, Lisa and Warren, who managed to row out uh, to kind of watch this thing go up in flames as it does. The Scooby gang kind of perform their plan to basically burn all the buildings so that there's nowhere to shelter from the uh, from the sunlight, uh, and everyone dies in various appalling ways. In ter- beyond that, you have Pruitt, who manages to kind of wrest back his humanity. It's a really interesting turn for his character. Mm. He sort of looks upon all this chaos and horror and again, it, he finally manages to find that strength that other characters, very few other characters in this show, are able to have from when they're properly full-blown vampire monsters. You know, I love the scene between him and Erin uh, because Erin is his daughter um, from the uh, affair he had. Sorry, Sarah. Is it Sarah who's his daughter? Sa- Sarah's thought, his daughter. Yeah, Sarah's his daughter. Yeah, from an affair he had with um, uh, Mildred. Uh, Mildred, yeah. And he says, it never felt like a sin. Our daughter was never a sin. And I love that line from him, you know, because even in, you know, the fact that he was a priest having an affair with a woman and, you know, she bore a child and he always never, he never felt like that was a sin. That that to me kind of was the goodness in his character that, that kind of stopped him from going quite the way of Bev in all this. And even though he has wrought terrible things on very many people, you do get a sense of the conflict of the man, of the old man as well. Yeah. And this younger body that, that that humanizes him more than I thought possible, actually. Yes. And I, I think that's the key to him, right? Like, so his last scene, like to talk about last scenes, he yes. kind of, you know, I mean, I mean, um, his, you know, uh, I've just, I've just said her name and completely blanked on it. Uh, Sarah's mum, Mildred. Shoots Mildred. Him, right. She shoots, shoots him. Yeah. She shoots him. He gets killed by, he, she then gets killed by the angel. Um, this is where it starts to crumble for him because his vampire best friend has just killed his actual love of his life. Um, and the reason but, he did it, he he confesses that she was the the reason he brought yeah. the vampire back was to yeah. was to restore her to youth. And then as he goes to he goes to confront Sarah, who's going about to burn down the church, and then Sturge shoots Sarah, who is killed, and Sarah doesn't go to church, so she just dies. She doesn't become a vampire, and she spits and this out leaves the blood, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because he tries to save her, and she re- yeah. rejects it, which is obviously obviously crucial. And then the three, you know, um, he takes her body down to the to the bridge that Sarah used to play on when she was a kid, and the three of them, you know, uh, are there in the sunset together. And he explicitly takes his collar off and throws it into the into the water. And I think the really crucial thing with with Pruitt is, um, and this is at least my my reading of it, but I think this is text to the extent that it's text in the show is, is the key thing with him is he was never that devout. Clearly he had an affair. He you know, mm-hmm. fell in love, had an affair and his, what he is. And actually he's also pretty deeply empathetic. Like you see this with Riley, you see it throughout the show. It's one of the reasons he's so compelling, but he has access through his position, through his power of oratory to summon this sort of um, 
didactic power into being and sort of use it for his will and um and and to exert his will and his he lies to himself about his real reason for being for bringing the vampire to the island right his reason for doing it is because he wants he regrets his life he wants another chance at life with the woman he loves and the daughter that he loves as well and uh, these are ultimately selfish human things um to the extent that riley was also a selfish human uh, in a large part of his life and and i think you know you could talk, say that he loses his faith at the end i don't think it does i think he finally takes off the costume at the end and he is revealed that there's this you know bev is devoted to him but she's devoted to an image he's projecting and that hypocrisy is doomed this entire island right to the extent that he gets and or deserves a uh a redemption arc i don't think he really gets one i think where he gets is a moment of like honesty at the end which humanizes him but reveals the ways in which his empathy was ultimately sort of um failed in the face of the power at his uh disposal for some reason the phrase um and he almost then i think he's one of the ones that realizes the the reality of the kind of bestial power that he's brought into their midst the phrase that won't go out of my brain that i think was was in my head after i saw the show and i was thinking about it was for all my chat that's just a vampire in a hat um <laughs> absolutely <laughs> which is the <laughs> that's the underlying message of father uh, monsigny Pruitt in this show um um like and um, I do find that quite touching, even though you should be angry with him, right? Like his inability in a way, or the fact that he was not really allowed by the town people who were devoted to him to almost die with dignity as old Monsignor Pruitt. His chance encounter with this power that let him potentially do something about it led him to do a apocalyptically awful thing <laughs> in the mm. pursuit of something that he thought was good. And I think that is a... Um, an important counterpoint to um, the fate of the characters that don't have that kind of power, but use the power that they do have to then close this wound that is created. Yeah. I will say just cause I think it's pertinent to the, the sort of the last sort of 10 minutes, 15 minutes of the final episode is that music in the show is really good. They use yeah. lots of Neil Diamond for some reason. It's a really unusual choice. Like I, I wonder if there's something to do with like him being a Jewish, you know, a famously Jewish sort of perspective singer songwriter or something to do with that to kind of bring a kind of mm. that into the show. Um, uh, and also all the use of hymns and um, spiritual songs and stuff like that. Nearer my God to thee, which he uses pretty obsessively over the course of the the first half of the show it comes in and out quite mm. a lot and then he drops it away and i'm saying sort of mike flanagan working with his composer he drops it away to kind of and in these final episodes it just sort of tinkles through it's really interesting the score suggesting it but never actually playing it until um flynn's parents start singing it after they realize that they have a choice not to be disgusting uh, vampire monsters um and the whole final section of the show is 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 scored by the townspeople singing it um and i love near my god to thee it's such a wonderful tune you know um yeah. and it it underpins the kind of final moments of the show uh, beautifully uh i think erin who basically sacrifices herself to the angel who has revealed himself more than ever to be a really just disgusting monster in this final you know you literally see it 
just feeding on people and when they try and attack it it doesn't even notice them you know it's just yeah. this hungry motherfucker uh, <laughs> and and when it's when it's feeding on her uh, the sort of loving way it's cradling her head I, her head as it does so i thought was so disgusting and yeah. she lets it do it as she uh, as she slashes its wings to stop it from flying away um, yeah, which is this culmination of her arc, right? Where she was sort of told by her abusive mother that she had clipped her mother's wings by existing. And, yeah. you know, there's a there's a, a book ending there. And again, that, that, that is maybe sometimes too neat. I would I wonder what you made of Erin's final monologue, because I think something that, you know, it's a show of many monologues. And her final one, I think, is um, the last significant, you know, bit of dialogue of the show. It's not the last line of the show, but it's close to. Um, and it's it's a very long meditation on another long meditation on death. This time, kind of unifying Riley's you know previous kind of humanist position with Erin's more previously explicitly religious position. Um, I have watched it a few times now. I well, I'd be interested to know what you thought of it, thought of it, particularly at that moment in the show. Honestly, I thought it was fucking glorious. <laughs> I mean, I'm almost tearing up thinking about it uh, right now. I mean. I kind of, when it was, you know, because it's she delivers it in a recreation of the scene she had earlier where she is a kind of different version of it. Fleeting mm. little dreamlets printed on the tissue of my dying brain and I am the lightning that jumps between. I am the energy firing the neurons and I'm returning. Uh, and I'm just another bit. We are the cosmos dreaming of itself. It's simply a dream that I think is my life every time, but I'll forget this. I always do. I always forget me. I always forget my dreams. Um I, I, I kind of expect myself to dislike it, <laughs> mm. for it to think, for me to think it's too much. And there's a weird abstract way to talk about myself, but I was surprised by how taken in by it I was. Um, yeah, I just think it's glorious poetry, and it feels so true. Even if you know, maybe it is just you know, soothes. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of the way it's delivered with the nearer my god to thee in there and the intercutting between her dying and between the between the scene with her and um riley and, and riley and and just all that stuff i just i was i was completely knocked out by it um there is no time there is no death life is a dream it's a wish made again and again and again and again and again on onto into eternity and i am all of it i am everything i am all i am that i am yeah i just for yeah, some reason I, it stole my heart <laughs> oh i mean thing is because I'm, I'm glad to hear that because i have a like i had a slightly tricky relationship with it and i keep having a slightly tricky relationship with it which is not stylistic because i think it's, it is a beautifully written and delivered monologue and maybe this is going to be a little bit arch but forgive me like what she does is she slashes the angel's wings to prevent it from escaping right to force it to burn up in the sun even as it tries to escape and there's this notion of throughout the show of who will escape this island, right? Uh, and the answer is ultimately the kids to some extent, but then in many ways, none of them. Um, except Erin, who in that moment, you know, that's that monologue that ends with I am that I am. She effectively becomes God because she's describing becoming one with God, right? Becoming one with the universe. And to some extent, the difference is semantic. And she sort of like, her, she almost like, spiritually and in terms of her eloquence and her ability to articulate that the, the density of that concept almost like sort of rockets out of the show like a meteor for me like it is this sort of um 
very touching kind of you know act of apotheosis really and she gets and and i think you know the show is right to identify that she's one of the characters who kind of deserves it given her life experience and things like that and what she's been through in the show however there is a part of me and this is maybe more personal than anything else who's a little bit wary of that neatness um you know, elsewhere in that ending, you know, you have uh, the the shot I, I love as hard as it is of um, Sheriff Hassan and Ali praying on the beach together. Ali has been vampirized or vampirized himself and therefore will burn up in the sun. Uh, Hassan is dying from a bullet wound. And as they're praying, he just collapses sideways and that's it. You know, he, mid, he, he dies mid-sentence. Similarly, the town people, as they gather and they sing, Near My God to Thee, are cut off kind of beautifully, like mid-note by the sun rising and they burn up all in the same instant and it left mid-sentence the last line of the show is lisa saying i can't feel my legs which is um you know kind of indicates that um the power of the vampire has kind of left her it's ultimately a good thing but it's very bittersweet although i was kind of hoping that i was kind of hoping that they said wow that really escalated (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah the fucking hell says (laughs) what a weekend uh, is warren (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) um yeah um and sorry i interrupted you to go on that's okay but and then in the midst of that you get the you know and so you have all of these characters whose fate is either obviously their fate is obviously very certain apart from the angel themselves but their their last words are cut off right or unfinished in some way or you know bev literally ends her life scrabbling to not end um, it's all very appropriate. And then Erin in the middle of it gets this soaring monologue. And it really is that kind of projects her, like, as I say, up and away and out of the show, which I find it very moving. And I also find it like, I'm trying to describe this. And this is maybe a very personal response. I almost like probably would be more comfortable with no one in the show getting that, right? Mm. With, yeah. with, with there being more uncertainty left in the world. And the thing it makes me think of, and maybe this is a little personal, but I'll just say it in this. I'm very, I have a tendency because I talk a lot as a person generally um, to try and tie a bow on things that I'm saying. Probably going to do it at the end of this paragraph. And um, that means that I can kind of like admire and relate to some of the ways that people in these shows express themselves. However, I am, I'm, you know, have, I have to, you know, I find it difficult to, uh, sort of uh i find it uncomfortable to not be able to land a thought or a sentence and tie a bow on it god i get this at the end of therapy sessions of all things right that need to kind of tie a bow on something yep same and yeah and like you know and i uh you know i have this bad habit like clock watching when i'm recording anything or talking to someone of like well i need to end this sentence how do i maybe it's a writing instinct i don't know what it is but that's how do i package this all up and and kind of like hand it off into the world so it's not still connected to me in some way and the the way erin's final monologue wraps up her experience and it really is quite isolated around her i i am that i am hmm. feels to me like a kind of um almost like the final like kind of guilty pleasure that the thing that i should be focused on is actually the imperfect um bittersweet incomplete endings that are given to every other character because that is more true to human experiences i live it or as i kind of encounter it and hopefully that's not too real but there's something about that that's it's maybe the only moment where given that i normally find the the flanagan monologue as something that gives me access to a side of human experience that i don't always get out of tv uh generally 
that one at the end almost feels like it goes past me off into territory where I can no longer follow it would be the way I would put it. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think, I mean, I think you're right. And I, 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 you know, I love the poetry of it. I mean, I don't think this is how the world works. I don't think she's right about, you know, the way she's describing existence here. Um, and it is a show about dogma <laughs> and dogma mm. delivered through preaching. And so it is, you know, perhaps a little bit contradictory for it to sell us a piece of very beautiful poetry to round things up. I mean, I do exactly the same thing. I, I always have it in my head as, uh, as something like at the end of a children's story. It's like, and they went home and they had the best fish and chips they'd ever had. And it's <laughs> that kind of that kind of vibe where you want to really hit that final you know, um, full stop. Um, and no, I, I think you're entirely right. I think he gets away with it because the mise-en-scene of it all is so beautiful and numinous. But I do think you're right that actually the show would survive perfectly well with the finality of of kind of these these stories cut short, um, but these courageous co- stories cut short rather than rather than doing, yeah, Mike, we've all read the final pages of From Hell by Alan Moore. You know, it's... Uh, mm-hmm. And and American showrunners really need to stop stealing from Alan Moore because we can see it. We can see them when they're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, uh, generally, I, I I thought glorious. I love that the you know the the angel flies off, um, hopefully to perish. Although we don't actually see it. I like I like that that's handed to the audience as as a hope that, that it will mm-hmm. or a likelihood. You know, it, we're we're expected to have faith in the fact that it will burn up before it. It can't race the sun, um, uh, and yeah, and then the the show ends with uh, Lisa and uh, what's his name in the Warren. in the boat, and and she says, uh, "I can't feel my legs," and then it just ends. It's uh, yeah. that is quite downbeat, you know. It's um, it's unusual. Yeah, but she's smiling when she says it, which is such a yeah, man. But that's yeah. that's the ambiguity I love, right? Because that's when it yeah. kind of says all of this stuff, all of this complicated stuff that's been dramatized on this island is part of kind of human experience right yeah that the the you know and that it's ultimately a message of literally accepting the things you can't change uh and having the wisdom to recognize things that you can yeah. uh and uh, you know I, I think that's um because i know that you know the broader production history of the thing is that this is a i think midnight mass was a novel that mike flanagan tried to write and then sort of shopped around for a long time before having the kind of support and trust from the success of the other shows to actually make the thing. Uh, there are references to it in almost all of his other works that I am aware of. Um, and so it's sort of, um, uh, you know, I think Midnight Mass is literally a book that one of his other characters is writing in one of yes, his other I shows. Yes, I saw some of that stuff, yeah. yeah. And so, like, it sort of feels like, um, I think that personal side of it is is kind of what... Uh, ultimately carries it and makes it elevates it for me at the end as well in addition to as you say the kind of like really striking filmmaking yeah and it's i think you're right that the show itself comprises just one big serenity prayer really Mm. serenity prayer is is kind of one of those bits of i think it's christian in origin although i'm sure it's older than that really um as most of these things are but like it's almost mathematically true. There's no good argument against the serenity prayer in the way that there's no good argument against the golden rule of do us to others if you have them do to yourself, you know. Um, yeah. And it and for the show to kind of extend itself over those over those you know 
truisms um, with such complexity of character and with an ultimate sense of sort of positivism, which I think is probably the the, the charitable way of looking at Aaron's speech. You know, it's a it's a positivism. It's that kind of there's a there's a spark in things. You know, uh, there's, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, as, as Leonard yeah. Cohen said. And and I think you know that is definitely true. And I think yeah, I I, I left the show feeling sort of sad and hopeful, which yes, I guess same. is better than just sad and despairing. <laughs> sad and right, uh, yeah. And this, yeah, like, I think it's sort of, um, that is something that I really appreciate getting from horror, effectively. Uh, and it's not always a given um, that in, in kind of exposing the things in kind of really kind of engaging with the complexity and difficulty and occasionally pain and, and, and fear that come with just being alive, it also kind of, um, kind of, takes you by the hand at the end and kind of tells you it's going to be okay which is like i'm struggling to wrap this up i will say like there's you know um it is ultimately very moving and i think that's one of the reasons i would recommend it to people who wouldn't necessarily otherwise choose to watch horror and it's funny that he's he's uh i'm extending it over now uh it's funny that he's you know someone who's only recently recovered from alcoholism he he talks about and that this show has been long since gestating. So I'm sure the fact that he's done two successful shows for Netflix make it easier, but it's also interesting that to give himself that final act of the show, you know, it, he had to resolve his own personal issues, you know, that would that would sort of send him, you know, to that place where he could, he could finally tell this story. And I'm very glad he did. Yeah, I am very glad also. And I'm glad we could take the time to discuss it as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we should, we should talk about, television some more at some point maybe Absolutely. when midnight club comes out or we all go watch doctor <laughs> sleep or something um thank you very much for listening uh, everybody who has stuck with us um i hope you have i never know how to wrap these up these lock-ins jamie do you want to go at it um talking about, endings. Uh, <laughs> talking about endings uh thanks for listening everyone i'm just going to say that in isolation <laughs> um yeah uh thank Thank you for staying with us if you have. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we'll be back for more similarly uh, in-depth chats soon because they're good fun, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, um, thank you to everyone who supports the podcast on Patreon. You can find out more about that at patreon.com forward slash create and crowbar. Uh, you can find other lock-ins like this one on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash create and crowbar. And on our website at create and crowbar.com. It's also where you'll find a link to our Discord, uh, where people discuss many things, mostly video games, but also television films, all sorts of other subjects about things you can look at on a screen or hold in your hands or just think about as a human being. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the sum of it. Uh, I've been Chris Thurston. I've been Jamie Britton, and I can't feel my legs.